What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast where I have the man, the myth, the legend, Marty Bent. Maybe Marcus Dent, I don't know. But we get into a bunch of different topics, potential World War Three. I don't know. A lot of great stuff here from Marty. We touched a lot of things, so be sure to tune in for another action-packed episode. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, make sure this is not financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast is strictly the opinion of Marty and myself. And shout out to my sponsor, Pleb Lab, the greater, the greatest hacker space down in Austin, Texas. If you haven't checked it out yet, what the hell are you doing? Get down there and check it all out. If not, if you can't get to Austin anytime soon, think about donating from afar. Buy a, a Nostra Devs course. Buy some sort of pass for one of their events. Help the boys out. They're being the number one hacker space in the country, in uh, maybe in the Bitcoin space period. So I might actually just throw that out there and make that claim for myself. So be sure to check them out, pleblab.com. Help the boys. Help them all out. All right. That's enough for me. Hit that subscribe button, and let's get into the episode. Whoosh. All right. I am back with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast, where I've got the man, the myth, the legend, Marty Ben. Interviewed so many different people, including Tucker Carlson, Whitney Webb, and, and many, many more. But I want to kind of dive into Tucker Carlson because he's been in the news a lot lately. He had Javier Mille on his podcast and everything like that. So, um, you know, obviously mainstream media... It's kind of changing, obviously, you know, he's been completely on X now or Twitter, whatever we want to call it. Um, so tell us, did he did he give you any little tidbits when you met him? Did, were you able to, I guess, talk to him a little bit about Bitcoin? And uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. No, unfortunately, I wasn't. Uh, the So I was on his show back in February 2021 during the Canadian trucker uh protests that were happening up in Canada it was right after the government sort of shut down the Coinbase wallets for individuals and, and froze their accounts uh, and he had me on to discuss the nature of that particular event whether or not Bitcoin uh, could be shut down or Bitcoin accounts could be shut down and so like, I had to I think it was like a two and a half minute spot where I was sitting in a production bed in Florida actually um piping into where where he was recording from just let him know like yeah if you hold your bitcoin on an exchange they could certainly freeze your account but if you hold bitcoin in your own wallets that is uh impossible to extremely hard so uh it was literally the only face-to-face -face interaction i've ever had with them uh, but it was cool it was a cool experience uh going on his show and yeah i think what's happened to him over the last year been very interesting to see it seems that he is unplugged now that he's syndicating his own content from his twitter account or his ex account referred to it these days but I, I think he understands bitcoin uh intuitively that was um yeah I had, a, I had a relationship with his producer whenever they would have bitcoin questions she would text me and i'd help them out just so happened on that day when i was on the show um i was asked answering some questions for her and she asked if i wanted to be on to discuss it with Tucker. So yeah, it was a really cool experience. Um, and it's cool to see that he's running free right now, uh, outside the confines of Fox news. 
Yeah, it's absolutely great stuff. So, I mean, obviously you've had, you know, plenty of guests. You've been you've been around the the podcasting game for quite some time. Is there any, I guess, like wild interview that kind of stands out to you? Anything like that really, you know, when you kind of look back, you're like, wow, I can't believe that this has happened uh, and kind of the journey that you've come on. Uh, I mean, being able to sit down with Jack Dorsey in person at Square's headquarters uh, in 2019, that was really cool podcast was not even two years old at that point so that was a really cool experience and getting to talk to jack before and after the show was pretty awesome and surreal definitely one of the highlights of of the show over its first six years and uh, all the conversations with whitney uh, have been awesome the balaji episode that we posted uh, in the beginning of the summer that was an unexpected marathon i thought it was going to be 90 minutes but turned into four and a half hours and I think that's definitely a show I'll remember for a long time. About Balaji sort of dissecting the state of the world, drawing parallels between what's happening today and what's happened throughout history of the last 115 years, particularly. But yeah, it's um, it's cool. The it's the one thing I love about the show. It just allows me to explore my own curiosities. So that's led me to people like Jack Dorsey, Balaji, Whitney. A lot of people in the energy sector. Those are some of my favorite episodes. There's some Nas Al Haji, uh, Doomberg, Robert Bryce, um, exploring those areas and the macro conversations as well with people like Luke Groman are always are always awesome. That's one thing I feel very fortunate uh, that the show has had the success that it has. I've been able to have all these different types of conversations with really smart and interesting people. Yeah, it's great stuff. I mean, we've we've kind of even gone through, you know, some of the other ones, right? I mean, like Dave Collum, obviously, as well. I mean, you guys had some amazing guests on your show. But, you know, I guess, uh, you know, outside of, I guess, some moments that stands out, which is the craziest rabbit hole that you've uh, that you've been sent down because of, you know, some guest that comes in and just starts, you know, spewing some fire out there. I think Whitney definitely sent me down uh, the darkest rabbit holes. Uh, but again, the energy stuff is a deep rabbit hole. I didn't understand how deep it was until I started recording more energy-focused episodes uh, in 2019 when I was at Great American Mining. We were dealing a lot with oil and gas producers, so I decided I needed to get a better understanding of what was going on in energy markets and started having a lot of people in the energy sector on the show. And I think energy is something that Many humans, including myself, up until a few years ago, took for granted and the complexity of how the, the world enables us to come in and do what we're doing right now, streaming over the internet, is uh, extremely fascinating. It's something I think more people should understand. It's a rabbit hole. I've been falling down for four and a half years now, uh, and it doesn't seem like there's really an end to it. And especially in today's day world where day and age where many governments and climate hysterics seem to be very confused about what we need as a global society to actually succeed moving forward. It seems that there are many people who are willing to sheet ourselves in the heads uh, at the altar of, of the climate crisis. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like, you know, it, it's an interesting dynamic that we have going on right now. It's, it seems like it's a political battle in a sense. Um, but, you know, you've had 
uh, Tom Luongo on your podcast a couple of times. And I know he talks about the intercobble squabble, I, I believe is how he mm-hmm. kind of you know, t- describes it. And so, you know, do you think that, that you know, the Fed and uh, just, I guess, the overall macro and, you know, what Jerome Powell's doing by raising interest rates at such a historic rate, you know, do you think that that's kind of like, I guess, in a sense, like part of this and the way that, I guess, Europe is is coming back uh, is or not, um, maybe not Europe necessarily, but like, you know, how Russia and China and BRICS countries are kind of playing it is, you know, all right, you're going to. Uh, play us on on the economic side of things we'll play you on the energy side of things like do you think that that's kind of i guess the the war that's almost going on right now yeah i certainly think you have to put a material probability on it i think tom's thesis that the fed is using their monetary policy to essentially cripple the european economy because the commercial bank interest here in the united states do not want to go along with uh with the european centric uh, sort of political power of the world wants to do, which is sort of the thesis of the World Economic Forum, which is you, you'll have nothing and you'll be happy by 2030. Uh, it's a very convincing thesis. And again, something you should definitely put a material probability on whether or not it's actually happening is yet to be seen. I don't think we'll ever know if that's the actual intention. Uh, but now I think when you weaponize, that's that's the thing too. You brought bricks in Russia in all these countries, I think one thing is definitely for sure is that the geopolitical landscape is extremely volatile right now. And you have people making missteps all over the place where it's, whether it's Europe with their immigration policy and their energy policy, or here in the United States with our monetary policy and weaponization of the dollar system. I think these factors in, from Europe's perspective, putting themselves in a relatively weak positioned economically uh, due to their energy policy mainly. Um, and then the, the, the U.S. weaponizing the dollar sort of forced this volatility with, into the geopolitical landscape where countries like Russia, China, uh, Brazil, India are forced to sort of band together and say, hey, if they're going to weaponize the dollar, maybe we should figure out how to work outside of that system. Um, but even with that being said, like I'm, I'm not confident that BRICS bus countries will be able to coordinate and get along together. In the long run, you have a bunch of competing interests and in different sort of uh, government structures within BRICS alone, and that's why Bitcoin exists. Gives you this apolitical monetary system to coordinate uh, through and that's what's leading to a lot of these issues is coordination problems, um, whether it's driven by political philosophy, energy, uh, policy, uh, just becoming abundantly clear and that's getting harder and harder with 8 billion people on the planet and the world being flooded with debt for these countries to get along. Uh, the stress is just becoming so immense and they can't trust each other, which is, Probably the biggest problem that exists today is the lack of trust between these different international power players here in the U.S., Europe, or BRICS countries. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's like a really interesting dynamic, right? I mean, I, I agree with you in a sense where uh, all these BRICS countries have been very power hungry for for quite some time, and they're now all of a sudden going to cooperate. I just, you know, I, I find it very kind of, I guess, hard to believe in a sense, but it seems like we're kind of, I guess, like like you said, like in this. I, I, 
a very volatile geopolitical landscape, um, you know, where we got the US, the EU, BRICS countries, like all kind of trying to work together, I guess, outside of just the US going at it themselves. So, you know, I, in, in all of this, where do you see that where we're at in this fight? Uh, maybe, I don't know if fight's maybe the right word, but in the, like, maybe e EU versus U.S. Um, kind of battle here where, you know, the Fed and Jerome Powell's continuing to raise interest rates and, uh, you know, all these other opposing fiat currencies uh, are sort of, you know, dying off and uh, not necessarily being as strong as the dollar because of, you know, the moves that Powell's making. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the dollar merchant can replay uh but before us for all the week of kind of into the dollar and we fail as the dollar systems heavily reliant on debt that's never again, I think it goes back, I think really cause of a lot of the problems and their individual problems for each country, but it seems like a lot of them, particularly in the Europe and the US, have the same problem they've neglected to uh sort of recognize the reality that we live in first principles that got us to where we are today we this extremely developed global economy and i think starts with the energy sector here in the u.s and in europe the push this transition to unreliable renewable energy sources is really uh messing this up <laughs> like it's making it hard for people to to win, it's getting much more expensive for your average American, your average European to afford their 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 groceries, their electricity loans, their rent. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I don't even think you have to all pit the U.S. versus Europe, you know, to to really highlight what structurally call with these economies, just that those power have failed in my eyes. The fundamental reality of the world we live in, which is going to need more energy, need reliable energy. Um, and then on top of that, just exacerbated by all the debts and funds printing that that we've seen over the last 30 years, we think deep to the last 100 years. So we go all the way back under 10 years, we go back to all the bedrooms print. But yeah, I think it's there's definitely some infighting going on at that level, but it all is rooted in this lack of recognition of what it takes to actually have a highly functioning economy today's day of age. You can get energy and get money. You don't have either of those right now, um, whether it's here in the U.S. or really China uh, and Russia seem held dental and spinning up more live energy infrastructure and India as well. Who knows? But they're going to be able to figure things out on the monetary side of things. I'm too optimistic that they'll be able to do that. I think Bitcoin's the solution that a lot of them went to admit. want to admit because it'll force them to sort of get back at the level of playing field. They're all I mean, vying for control over one another. And so, yeah, I think disregarding like the inter uh cabal squabble if you want to you know go back to fundamentals are extremely messed up yeah exactly and i and i agree 100 percent. also 
but yeah, so back to it, uh, you know, I, I kind of want to get dive into, you know, I guess a little bit more of like, you know, where you think that we're, we're going from here, because, you know, obviously the, uh, you know, Tom's thesis is, you know, the intercarbal squabble um, is, is great. And it seems to be essentially playing out. There's a lot of, you know, that geopolitical tension, you know, going on. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're still going forward. And unfortunately, whether depending on who you ask, they think we're either having, you know, a soft landing, hard landing, Great Depression, like it really like, you know, you hear it from all different angles. You've obviously interviewed a lot of great, great people and different guests, you know, varying backgrounds and things like that. So, you know, based on all this, where do you kind of think we're going from here? Do you think we're going to, you know, have a worse a depression than the Great Depression? Do you think we're just going to have a soft landing? Like, I mean, obviously it's tough to predict, but I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. So, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it up to you. Yeah, I definitely don't think we're going to have a soft landing. Uh, whether or not we have a prolonged depression or uh, a less prolonged recession, I guess is the question. <coughs> and it seems like the powers that be are getting desperate. I mean, we're seeing just like very prototypical state reactions to the loss of control globally. Um, again, with going back to the debt. Inflation, particularly when these things get out of hand, uh, people get stressed out, they get angry, uh, and they begin to lash out. And when the plebs, the citizens begin to lash out, the governments typically uh, begin to lay blame on capitalists. Uh, we're seeing that in Canada, you know, last week with Trudeau coming out and blaming grocery stores for inflation uh, after he expanded the Canadian dollar monetary base by three. 3x over the last three years. No, we're seeing it here in the United States with all the strikes that are going on right now in a particular part of the government that is uh, blaming the greedy uh, car manufacturers for not paying their customers a lot. Uh, and again, it's not a good situation uh, with interest rates where they are. It's becoming extremely expensive for corporations to service their debt and we're seeing the highest bankruptcy rates corporate bankruptcy rates that we've seen since 2007 uh, they only seem to be increasing from here and so um, i think the fed the question of like a soft landing is completely out the door I think that's becoming glaringly obvious right now as we have interest rates at the highest levels they've been in well over a decade and inflation i mean last month inflation increased from 3.2 to 3.7 percent it's moving on a higher base and i don't think it said it's tamed inflation by any means we're seeing the price of barrel oil go up above 90 dollars now and that's a fundamental input for the whole economy so that will lead to higher prices throughout all needs eventually um so i, I think the fed and the, the u.s economy the global economy at large is in a very precarious situation where the whole reason that the fed went on this aggressive interest rate interest rate hike uh sort of run here of the last two years was to tame inflation it doesn't seem like they did that successfully now uh, we we're in the situation where we're having a bunch of bankruptcies and there's definitely a bunch of credit crises that loom some of them may be more isolated than others uh but it seems like the fed is setting itself up to have to step in and lower interest rates and print more money at some point in the next 12 months. And if they haven't actually solved the inflation problem before they're forced, before they're forced to river course on their interest rate 
the policy, I think that's just going to be a terrible situation. Um, I, I think when you talk about like topic of hyperinflation, it's definitely a bit touchy for people, but it's two parts. It's mechanical, how much uh, the, the monetary base expand by over any period of time. Uh, but then it's psychological. I think what the Fed is doing right now is potentially setting us up for that psychological um, tipping point moment where if they went on this aggressive rate hikes, created all these credit crises, led to all these bankruptcies, led to all this job loss and all this, and at the end of the day, they actually didn't solve inflation. I think at some point within the next 12 months, if they revert course and none of that is solved, uh, people are going to begin questioning the validity of the Fed and whether or not it can actually properly manage monetary policy and stick to its mandates of full employment and price stability. We're entering a territory where it's going to be blatantly obvious that they have no ability to control either, um, which is really bad for the Fed particularly. Um, and then since the U.S. dollar is reserve currency of the world, I mean, that presents systemic risks for the global economy. Um, and yeah, it's like hard to tell where the signal is and if there is actually any relative strength across any of the economies globally. I mean, it seems like China is having some ec economic turbulent times uh, as we speak right now. It seems like their, their real estate market is imploding. People are beginning to get very angry over there. Um, sanctions, whether people want to admit, admit it or not, have definitely hurt Russia in some regards. And Europe, again, Germany, which is the economic powerhouse of Europe, is completely decimated right now. They've had a lot of their manufacturing base move out of the country because of high electricity prices. Again, they're doubling down on their ignorant energy policy. And so, yeah, I think it, long story short, I think we're in for some pretty volatile times. And then you layer on the social stress that exists all over the world. People are very angry. Um, people uh, are reaching the end of their careers and beginning to realize that they're not going to be able to retire. Um, and if they are, not as comfortably as they may have thought just a few years ago. You rug pull people. Uh, at that scale, uh, who knows what that leads to socially, whether there's uh, increased levels of social unrest. I think that's certainly going to happen. I guess the question is, I hope to God that it's sort of contained um, to, to a manageable level, but I don't think we can rule out the possibility of it getting pretty, pretty crazy um, and very volatile. And I think seeing the, the war drums for World War III begin to get louder and louder is a sign of that. Typically when countries lose control, they try to send their citizens to war. It seems like a lot of the kleptocratic politicians here in the U.S. and in Europe are, are gearing up to send people to war to distract them from all those. And that would just be terrible. Just pull jet pour jet fuel on the fire, which is something that nobody should want. Hoping cooler heads prevail, but I don't think the politicians that we're stuck with right now um, have the ability to, to properly manage this. So I think there will be a lot of volatility. I guess the question is how quickly can we get to the masses and educate them like, hey, all these politicians, all these governments, all these central banks are the ones that are causing the problem. It's not 
the individual citizens at the end of the day. There's something structurally wrong with our global economy and it's the way money's created and the way uh, central planners try to granularly manipulate everything we do in our everyday lives, whether it's how much uh, hydrocarbons we're allowed to consume or how much food, how much meat we're allowed to buy. Uh, I think that's one thing I really hope is if it does get when when it does get to the point of extreme volatility that people don't look to politicians and central banks to solve the problems that some around. I think people need to employ some introspection and ask some really hard questions of like what is really actually driving these systemic issues that are making everybody's life worse off. But Marty, CPI's at uh, at three point six, where where it's coming down, right? I mean, inflation's under wraps, right? I I mean, obviously that's tongue in cheek, but you know, I think like a big part of it is you know, as, as the Fed and Jerome Powell has kind of been talking about you know battling inflation and everything like that. You know, he's he's mentioning some of the data points that he's looking at, and you know, uh, as far as like in, unemployment goes, and and some of the job numbers and things like that. It seems like all of the data that we're using right now is just you know, it's it's terrible. It's it's survey based. Uh, the the response rate previously was around you know sixty seventy percent pre email, where it was kind of your civic duty to to reply to some of these uh, you know census datas. But now now it seems like we're all kind of you know I guess grasping at straws. Um, so do you think that 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 I guess essentially like some of the data that that we're using to I guess kind of or the Fed's using to make some of these decisions. Uh, is almost like, I mean, obviously CPI is manipulated, but, you know, it seems like all the other, you know, data points are, are pretty easily manipulated to kind of help fit their narrative of, of some of the strings that they, you know, want to pull. So in a sense, do you, I, I guess, like how reliable do you feel that a lot of this data that the Fed is basing their decisions off of is? Not reliable at all. It's all fake. It's all fake data used to massage a narrative. I mean, we do have evidence of this that, revisions particularly to jobs reports throughout this year i think every single jobs report by the second revision uh has been lower than what was originally reported so they're artificially trying to pump up uh, the employment numbers uh people only read the headlines of the month that they're they're released and very few people actually go back and look at the revisions that they released many months later um if you actually look at the revisions the job market has been uh, pretty terrible if you're if you're using revisions as as the gauge of actual growth on the job on the labor side of the economy um so yeah i think all the data is manipulated and you just have to follow the incentives again with where the debt is where inflation is uh the only thing that these governments and central banks can fall back on to sort of keep the peace is narratives and they can manipulate data to portray a certain narrative uh, that will lull people to a false sense of security, even though they intuitively understand that the things have gone terribly awry. They see it every week at the gas pump at the grocery store um, when they're trying to buy a house. It's blatantly obvious that the data that the Fed and the government are putting out there in regards to economic data just does not compute with the reality that we're all living through. Yeah, I mean, and I definitely agree with you. I think it's the data is all manipulated in a sense, but I kind of want to get back to, you know, the, the World War Three type of narrative that you brought up because it seems like the fiat world that we live in essentially 
you know, incentivizes crisis, right? I mean, whether it's, you know, the, the jab and kind of like, you know, uh, essentially, you know, pumping money into the far, big pharma or war, whereas pumping money into big defense companies, you know, somebody always seems to benefit out of these crises. And so, you know, obviously the fiat uh, world that we live in is kind of, you know, crumbling as it seems, right? I mean, we've had Powell come out and say there's room for multiple global reserve currencies kind of prepping us for this going forward. Um, but, you know, I guess, how do you see this transition going, right? I mean, you brought up World War Three. Do you think that we're going to kind of get there? And then, you know, I guess, how do we come out of that? Because in a sense, I, it's, I, I see things going either one of two ways. Either there's, a, you know, I guess a big bloody crash, uh, and then we somehow end up into like some sort of a Bitcoin standard, or it's a long drawn out period where things aren't necessarily great, but they're not necessarily, I guess, bad. It's kind of like a, a prolonged stagflation. And there's some sort of transition period in between, you know, I guess the dollar in a sense, and uh, maybe like a Bitcoin standard where we have, I don't know, maybe a dollar backed by some hard assets, maybe even Bitcoin or something like that in between uh, kind of moving to, to, I guess, a hard money world. Yeah. Again, I don't know exactly where things are going to go. And so I think it's just having a few different scenarios in your mind and preparing for each of them individually so like hope for the best and prepare for the worst and i guess we'll start with the worst and we'll end with the more positive note but yeah the worst is that these governments are successful in pushing us in the world war three uh, the u.s and nato's very keen on on really continuing their antagonist antagonistic tactics with russia to bringing uh, the world to a world war. I mean, we're seeing a lot of coups in Africa. I mean, who knows? Maybe in retrospect, a decade, two decades from now, people will look back and um, essentially say that Russia invading Ukraine was actually the start of World War III. We may already be in it. Um, and I guess the hope is that it just doesn't escalate to a nuclear war because that would be uh, terrible for everyone living on the planet. Um, so that's the pessimistic paths we could take and probably the worst that people should prepare for is a world war in which the draft comes back and conscription comes back and politicians the world is citizens like you and me as cannon fodder um so that they can delay any um responsibility or accountability for the problems they've created the optimistic view on hoping for the best would be that i think We've seen, particularly throughout the last uh, 15 years, that digital age is a double-edged sword. Certainly, so a lot of strife and a lot of division, but can also be a powerful tool to push back against these warmongers. I think in 2012, uh, during the Syria, the Syrian war, when John Kerry was trying to convince people <laughs> that Syria was using chemical weapons. I'm uh, trying to push us into war in the Middle East. People sort of got on social media and said, no way, this isn't happening. Um, so optimistically, I, I think, especially coming off the heels of COVID, uh, the lockdowns, the mandates, uh, the vaccines, been a terrible failure. There's more and more people who are fed up with politicians and how they're trying to essentially control us. So I do think we always have that in our back pocket, which is the hope that there's enough people who are aware, paying attention, and brave enough to speak up 
on social media and then meet space to say, whoa, 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 we're not going to do this. Like you can try to, to bring the draft back and try to inscript people to go fight your world war, but we're not going to do it. Um, and then, uh, also something you said, which is probably in line with the optimistic, like prepare for the best is that the economic turmoil just gets dragged out longer than, than many people expect, uh, credit crises are able to be relatively contained within their individual sectors. Uh, the Fed and the federal government are able to kick the can down the road a bit further by lowering interest rates and printing more money, while at the same time more and more people are adopting Bitcoin. And even though they're completely debasing the money and putting us into more and more debt, there's more and more people getting access to, to sound money and uh, adopting Bitcoin standards at an individual level that can lessen the blow down the road. Um, but yeah, I guess you have to prepare for both scenarios, full-blown World War III, where everything's dragged into the mud, the money printers get turned on blast immediately, um, and, and things get chaotic for for many years, and then the optimistic path, which is still not a great path. Is, um, things get drawn out, people stand up and speak out and say, hey, we're, we're not going to World War III for all the corrupt politicians. Yeah, no, 100%. And yeah, I mean, there's obviously those two different things, and it's very tough to predict. But obviously, you know, when it comes to all this, Bitcoin doesn't care, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the, the mantra. So, uh, you know, you've been in this space for a while, you've had a podcast on on Bitcoin, you know, for, for quite some time, you've been able to meet a lot of people, you know, I, we're, we're kind of in an interesting bear market right now, where, you know, it, it seems like it, it might be tough economic times, you know, come come the having next year which will be kind of the first scenario. And obviously we've seen the Bitcoin uh, hash rate increase uh, during a bear market for the first time, I think, uh, since Bitcoin's, uh, you know, inception. So, you know, in, in general, like kind of where do you see where we're at in the uh, in the Bitcoin space right now? And like, uh, is there something that I guess like leaves you like really optimistic going forward, whether it's, you know, some, some certain company aspect building or, you know, Bitcoin adoption in countries? Like, where do you kind of see I guess the the greener pastures on the other side. Yeah, it's been a, a long bear market, but the cliche is true: building happens in the bear market. And from a fundamental perspective, uh, with Bitcoin, it could be more bullish than I've ever been. Uh, I think there's uh, many factors that are coalescing at the same time right now. You mentioned mining, I think the energy sector is becoming very aware of how mining can fit into their operational stack and benefit their businesses, their uh, efficiencies as businesses. And I think that trend is only getting stronger. And I, I think those in the energy sector who get it are able to sort of block out the noise and they see the signal. So they'll be really integrating with the Bitcoin mining industry more and more moving forward. They have uh, really made big moves during this bear market, which has been good to see. Uh, whether it's uh, here on the grid in Texas, we've seen a lot of activity in Tennessee Valley Authority, up in Appalachia, uh, other countries like uh, Kingdom of Bhutan getting in, uh, Oman investing $1.1 billion in uh, a miner to, um, to leverage their natural resources to mine Bitcoin. So I think the mining and energy sector convergence is something that's been 
happening in the background during this bear market. And that's really bullish long-term once you get the energy sector bought into Bitcoin and how it can help them. That's a very strong ally to have. Getting me forward. And then on top of that, uh, a couple other themes that are really beginning to take form is the maturation of the Lightning Network for five and a half years into uh, the Lightning Network being a thing launched in March of 2018. Uh, even though it's not uh, in its final form yet, uh, a lot of valuable work has been done over the last five years. So we have very robust uh, implementation competition. There's a lot of development libraries that are robust and make it easier for people to build applications on. You have a bunch of Lightning service providers that have really matured over the last couple of years, whether it's Voltage, Strike, River, um, Amboss, uh, I think what seeing LightSpark and David Marcus come into the space uh, has been a good validation. I, Lightning's not, again, in its final form, but I think the progress that's been made uh, has been material. We'll see the benefits of that on the other side of this bear market. Bitcoin as super collateral um, within credit products. I think that's something that many people aren't aware of that's going on behind the scenes, but I think many people in traditional credit are beginning to under understand how Bitcoin can sort of be blended into their credit products uh, due to its profile as a scarce asset that is extremely liquid. So that adds a good collateral aspect to a lot of the credit products that are out there and that Bitcoin can be implemented into. And so, yeah, like coming out of the other side of this bear market, I think the fundamentals, whether it's the mining sector, lightning, uh, the Bitcoin financial applications, it's, it's the fundamentals have never been better. From those three regards specifically, there's much more that's been going on that just adds to my bullishness. The fundamentals are, are, better than they ever have been. And I think they're only going to continue to get better. And then another thing, it's actually an interesting externality of this high interest rate policy. Is I think a lot of the companies in the space is something where you'd experience a 1031 um, with the <clears throat> higher cost of capital. It's it's forced uh, all the companies building in the space to think deeply about how they actually manage their balance sheets, their burn rates, what they decide to invest in, how many people they hire. And so even though it sucks that it's a bear market and we've got this high interest rate environment, I think there's a lot of hard lessons being learned, good lessons that'll pay dividends in the future. So I think what we're seeing in this environment is a lot of companies in the industry become much more conservative and really try to leverage all the talent and capital they have to, to go the furthest they can without having head counts or OPEX and just run as late as possible which I think will, will benefit the industry massively moving forward. It's sucks a bit now, but I think a year into <clears throat> the, the FTX blow up of last year, all the fallout from that, I think the dust has settled and people are really honed in on how they're building their companies, how they're building their products and how they're managing the balance sheets, which is actually a very good positive externality of, of these bear markets. Yeah, and I mean that that is an interesting point you brought up and you actually you stole my thunder a little bit cuz that's where I wanted to go next was it was more about the Bitcoin companies and kind of the overall like state of where they're going. Um so it's it's kind of I guess a, a two-part question I have for you here is like, you know, obviously money's getting tighter, right? I mean, it's harder to get 
Um, you know, whether it's venture capital funding, bank loans, it's harder to fund some of these businesses. So, you know, as you've uh, uh, lined out already, they're they're trimming a lot of fat. But, you know, in a sense, do you think that's kind of, I guess, slowed the growth of, you know, potential for, you know, I, I guess, companies in the Bitcoin space in general? Because, you know, it seems like there's, you know, I, I guess a tough narrative because, you know, outside of, you know, Bitcoin only VCs like 1031 and, and you know, Lightning Ventures and some of these other ones. It seems like, you know, a lot of other venture capitalists are probably going to be gun shy, at least from my perspective, when it comes to Bitcoin companies, because of what we've seen, you know, and that I guess the, I'll call it the crypto fallout of like FTX and some of these other companies have, have maybe left a bad taste in, in some of these, uh, I guess, general venture capitalist uh, uh, mouth. So, um, you know, with that being said, uh, yeah, do you think like, I guess the, the, the growth has been, you know, I guess stunted for some Bitcoin companies and that we almost like, you know, I guess need a, a little bit of a bull run in order to, to, I guess, help prop up some things like, you know, the lightning network, get some more developers in there, get some people funded and other things like that. Uh, no, I think there's a couple things on this particular subject. One, I think a lot of companies raise money at a good time, uh, in, 2021 and early 2022 before things got got really bad uh and so a lot of companies had the uh, pretty robust balance sheets as things were starting to break down in 2021 uh, after a lot of people raised a bunch of money they began to slow hiring and really sort of see what was going on on the horizon say all right maybe we should be more conservative uh and then number two i think you look at just the metrics of a lot of these companies i mean river post publicly like their their lightning services uh is seeing the most activity that it ever has in the middle of this bear market um they're adding clients pretty consistently i mean unchained raised a big round by <laughs> capital uh earlier this year in the middle of the bear market so i think that is one thing that we've seen at the institutional level at 1031 is that there has been a clear deep delineation between Bitcoin and crypto that is beginning to form and not every investor is mine, but there's certainly people who are getting the signal like, oh, the FTX and the BlockFi's, the Celsius's of the world were doing it wrong. There aren't people who are doing it right. There is signal in Bitcoin. Bitcoin does have validity to it. We just have to find the companies that are that are building the correct products and doing it the right way. Um, so there definitely are companies that are struggling. Uh, and it is very hard time to raise money for them. The ones that are clearly building products that will last for a long time. Uh, I think there is a, a particular type of institutional investor that's able to see that signal and really block out the noise and employing the strategy that everybody hears about growing up and very few actually deploy, which is when they're flooding the water. When there's blood in the streets, you should be you should be going in, and so we we've definitely seen more people uh, looking at the the, the top tier blue chip companies in the space, um, and then on top of that, I do think things like BlackRock and other institutional investors signaling that they want to get into Bitcoin has created um, somewhat of a herd mentality at the institutional level where um, people aren't afraid of Bitcoin and Bitcoin companies. They're just trying to discern whether they're getting involved in FTX or somebody like an Unchained uh, or River. Um, it's definitely not the easiest time to raise, but I, again, I think there are a lot of 
high caliber companies in the space that reigns that uh, very fortunate times. And luckily, quickly after the raids, things sort of went to shit and they were forced to get conservative pretty quickly. Um, there are certainly companies in the space that are hurting, trying to get off the ground uh, and raise some capital. There are still deals being done, but obviously not as many as there were in 2021 and early 2022. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. But yeah, no, I think the industry is in a good spot. Um, and I guess, yeah, the question is, is how long are we going to be in this bear market? There are certainly some that can... Uh, can survive for another year or two years, but if it gets much longer than that, it could get bad. But I don't think it's going to go that long. Yeah, I mean, it'll be an interesting year uh, as it all plays out, right? With it, with a having and everything like that coming up here in uh, what like May of next year or so. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know when it, when it comes down to it, it's it's going to be uh, you know kind of an interesting overall macro environment. But do you see? I guess any, I, I guess gaps in in some of these development of Bitcoin companies because, um, you know, I I feel like a lot of uh, you know the startups that I interact with, it's a lot of like first time founders that are very you know gung ho about Bitcoin. They found some sort of gap in the market and they're kind of going at it um, from that aspect of things. And you know because of that, they're you know I guess learning on the job so to speak of of how to raise some or how to. Uh, run a company and then not only that run a bitcoin company which has to deal with you know more volatility than maybe some some traditional uh type of yeah i guess fiat company so um in that sense like you know do you think uh i guess a lot of founders are kind of learning some valuable lessons throughout this and um you know is there any gaps that you maybe you're seeing when it comes to um, not only just like yeah i guess founders but maybe even like company-wide um missing products missing aspects of things no, I mean, I, yes, I think founders are definitely learning a lot of hard lessons, especially if they're first-time founders. Um, but I think the benefit of being a founder within the Bitcoin space, you sort of find Bitcoin first and you understand the volatility that comes with the asset and are somewhat mentally prepared going into it. Not every founder, but a lot of founders sort of internalized uh, Bitcoin's historical volatility are aware of it and do plan accordingly. Um, there's definitely other founders who you'll load into situations that are going to be hard to get out of. Um, but yeah, I think that's one thing we try to do at 1031 is just leverage our experience as partners and the experience of people within our network to get them the resources they need to be as successful as possible to scale their companies, build out their products. Um, that's again, one thing about the bear market is there's a lot less distraction, so it's a lot easier to really focus in, and build out a roadmap uh, to begin executing on. That's one thing we've certainly seen within our portfolio companies at 1031 uh, is that a lot of people are really um, have really figured out their roadmaps or executing on building out those products, preparing for the bear market because that's the name of the game uh, in the Bitcoin industry. If you're building a company, it's uh, in the bear market, prepare for the next bull market and being able to take on that wave of new users and new activity. And um, then, yeah, I think uh, one problem that is still lingering that many companies have gotten wiser to, but it's still a problem. It could be an ongoing problem, which is banking relationships. Um, due to BlockFi, Celsius, FTX, a lot of the banks uh, in the US, particularly sort of stay away from uh, 
anything related to crypto, unfortunately, including Bitcoin companies. So that's one thing we've been doing a lot on uh, the 1031 side is sort of advising and helping founders and companies navigate uh, their banking relationships. And so I think what we've seen over the last year is that a lot of these companies have many banking relationships and they've built redundancy on the fiat side of things to make sure that they're they're not exposed to the third party trusted third party issues with the banking system it's good to see custodia go live obviously they're going to be catering to bitcoin companies so i think we'll see a lot more people begin to bank with them Um, but yeah uh, that's probably still going to be a problem particularly if the regulatory environment continues to get more um, continue the regulators continue to scrutinize what's going on in crypto, like it or hate it. Bitcoin gets lumped in with crypto, and we're gonna have to deal with any blowback that comes from the regulation side of things. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, you brought up BlackRock a little bit earlier, uh, and I kind of want to dive into that here as well because you know you you brought up blackrock bringing obviously wanting to get into bitcoin they're talking about their etf and obviously a bunch of others have followed suit um you know we saw blackrock scoop up a lot of commercial real estate downtown i'm sure in downtown a lot of cities i'm sure that are going to continue to do that as you know commercial real estate is hurting now and you know those mom and pop investors are potentially going to have to sell but i guess you know in a sense how do you feel about the blackrock etf like blackrock kind of coming into the bitcoin space and uh, yeah, I guess I'll just leave it at that. Like, is it beneficial for regulatory kind of stuff? Or do you think that, you know, at the end of the day, BlackRock's going to come and try to scoop up all the corn? Definitely going to try and scoop up all the corn. But I think that's, um, I think that's the beautiful thing about the situation. I think it's 19.4 or 19.6 million Bitcoin have already been distributed to the market. Uh, the number of Bitcoin that's flooding off exchanges is at all-time highs. The number of Bitcoin on exchanges is um, at relative lows. So I think what we're seeing, you can see this on the chain data, the long-term hodlers are becoming more and more emboldened in the fact that Bitcoin's going to succeed and they're not selling their Bitcoin. They're holding it off exchanges and wallets that they control, which is great to see. And then BlackRock, Entering the market again, like it or hate it, is reality that there are a large number of investors who look for BlackRock stamp of approval before they enter into a particular asset. There is also a large pool of investors who are not comfortable with holding their own keys and would gladly uh, hand over that that job to BlackRock and Coinbase. And so I think the ETF will have a lot of success. Whether or not they'll be able to accumulate uh, a material, like, let's say, 10, 5 to 10% of Bitcoin is yet to be seen. I'd be highly skeptical of their ability to do that, which is very bullish um, for anybody who's holding Bitcoin, because I do think that trend of hodlers understanding the asset that they're holding and its long term potential is not going to go away. Yes, there will be some that carve some profits off as the price runs but i don't think it's going to get to a point where um blackrock is able to accumulate millions and millions of bitcoin i do think they're going to acquire a lot of bitcoin they're going to find that the free float of bitcoin is a lot smaller than than people expect it to be which should uh send the price skyrocketing that's 
basically my base case is that we're lucky uh, that Satoshi designed the supply schedule the way he did and that 91% or 90% of Bitcoin that will ever exist has already been distributed to the market. Mainly being held by hardcore hodlers who intuitively understand the value prop of Bitcoin and its long-term potential. So I think BlackRock is going to be fighting over um, the last uh, 10, 5 to 10% of Bitcoin uh, with uh, individual investors and other institutions. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't recommend that anybody get exposure via the UTF. I don't think that you're actually going to be able to get your Bitcoin in kind as easily as they market. And I do think you're going to want to actually hold Bitcoin in the future, particularly five to 10 years from now, uh, due to all the utility that the network and the layers being built on top of it will provide you. Um, so yeah, I think the ETF will have success. It'll be hard for them to get Bitcoin, uh, which will drive the price higher. Uh, but I do think, I don't, know, I don't see many hodlers dumping their coins to buy ETF shares. Yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't recommend giving a uh, BlackRock any money to, to purchase Bitcoin either, because, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that that's, uh, you know, the best plan, uh, of action, right? I mean, holding your own keys, the decentralization aspect, I mean, the list goes on and on as to why, you know, you should, you should, uh, hold the Bitcoin for yourself. But, uh, before I let you go, I, I have to bring up Barstool. I mean, that's how, that's how I've, I first heard of you, Bitcoin Marty back in the day. Uh, obviously, they've been in the news a little bit uh, here lately uh, for a positive thing. I think that, uh, you know, Dave Portnoy, for those who don't know, the founder bought back Barstool for a whole whopping $1 after selling it for about $551 million. So, you know, I, I guess two questions for you. Like, how do you think Barstool would be, uh, I guess, receptive of you now opposed to when you first started? Because Bitcoin has changed quite a bit. And uh, you like kind of what do you take of, uh, I guess, this whole deal that, uh, of Portnoy buying uh buying back uh Barstool Sports. No, I'm very happy for Dave. I think you know um, the company is much better off with him being 100 owner. I'm very happy <laughs> that he was able to get his payday when Penn bought them. Um, but essentially, when they were under Penn's umbrella, they were a marketing arm that was a loss leader for Penn, and so um, they were losing a shit ton of money as a company. And then on top of that. It, diluted their brand because they weren't able to be uh, as brash and uh, self-centered quite a bit uh, with Penn being their parent company. So now that Dave has full control of the company, again, I mean, they've had to make hard decisions in recent months to lay off a bunch of people to get their their costs in line with their revenues, which I think is a very smart business decision. I'd like to see Barstool around for a long time. And I think Dave, Dan, and Kevin... Uh, do as well and they're, they're making the moves to ensure that that happens uh, I do think the content has gotten better <laughs> since they bought the company back there uh, not self-censoring as much as they were um, when they were under the pen umbrella great that's what their bread and butter is making people laugh and making edgy content that, um, that people use to escape the, the the craziness of this world that we were describing earlier uh, I mean, yeah, like I, I think they get Bitcoin to a certain degree. I mean, I still talk to uh, a few of the Barstool guys. I'm really good friends with Caleb. Uh, he's pretty bought in on the Bitcoin stuff. And so whenever he has a question, <coughs> he gets me up and we talk about it for a while. Yeah, no, I think I've been back 
bar stool a couple of times since I left. I've, I've got lunch with Dave once in Miami at one of the Bitcoin conferences. Uh, still a friend of, uh, of the show, I guess you could say. Definitely cheering for them to succeed moving forward. And won't be surprised if um, our paths cross um, at some point in the future, especially if the Bitcoin price runs. I think they're always curious what Bitcoin Marty thinks when, when things begin to yeah, exactly right. I mean, you're you're the the Bitcoin spokesperson of Barstool Sports. Like I mean, anytime that the price is ripping and rolling, that's when all the the normies and uh, they get get the eyeballs on it. But uh, you know, Marty, you've been very generous with your time, so I really appreciate you coming on. So uh, before I let you go, we gotta I gotta know is is there anything big coming up for the rest of the year? Right, we're recording this like early September or mid September. So you got any big plans for the rest of the year? Uh, that you want to, I guess, uh, get some eyes on and, uh, yeah. We got, uh, some big changes coming to TFTC, the website, particularly that I'm excited about, which should be live in a couple of weeks. Uh, I hope that, um, it's well received by Bitcoiners. Uh, we're really going to try to lean into the Trojan horse aspect of the brand, um, and expand what we're doing on the content side of things in a, in a unique way that, um, that leverages the Lightning Network particularly. So really looking forward to that. Um, so that that should be live in, in two weeks, the latest TM. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that and hope that uh, it allows us to go to the next level on the content side of things to really begin to Trojan horse this idea of sound money, freedom, and digital age in more and more people's minds. Awesome stuff. Well, Marty, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. It was great.